folks, welcome back to a special edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Uh, I'm here with Blair Jackson, who uh, spent some time with us on Saturday. Uh, Blair was the editor of BAM Magazine uh, in the late 70s and uh, became, a, a, you know, was an avid follower of the Grateful Dead for many years uh, and became intertwined with the family, uh, uh, very intimately writing a lot of books, teaming up with David Gans, writing conversations with the dead, certain chapters, and then writing, culminating in the in the biography of Garcia, An American Life, uh, which is the definitive book on on Jerry Garcia. I don't think uh, there there will nev never be anything written aside from that, right, Blair? What do you mean? <laughs> you mean well, by somebody else? Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, nobody. You had uh, well, I had pretty good access, and so did uh, Robert Greenfield for his book uh, Dark Star, which was sort of a more personal biography of, of Garcia done in a, um, uh, as told, not as told to, but, you know, all kind of interview stuff in, instead of any narrative, which is, that's a good book too, but, uh, yeah, I don't know, uh, you know, now we're, we're getting pretty far away from Garcia's death, and there are probably a few folks out there who haven't really talked much and who might have something illuminating to say, but hopefully, uh, I, I covered most of it. I did want to just correct one thing that I, that I you know you mentioned, which is, uh, you, you said that I co-wrote uh, Conversations with the Dead. I did not co-write Conversations with the Dead. I only wrote the uh, the introduction for it. Yeah, no, but you were all, all those are David's interviews with the dead. I, I guess I guess I'm I guess I'm in a couple of chapters because because uh, our big uh, Garcia interview from 1981 is in there. So uh, all right. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. Those that those to me, the the interviews with you and Gans are the best yeah. ones. Oh, okay. That's that, Those are the ones I focused on. I was going to say, it's fitting. I wake up this morning late. My family's barking at me and getting all angry. And I look over at my uh, iPhone. Update on MSNBC. Uh, Muammar Gaddafi found dead. Yeah. And I'm, th I'm thinking to myself, boy, in 84, what would the dead have talked about to get this? Because I know... Uh, I remember reading something where Jerry would talk about when they would, were developing space, you know, the idea of space and going after themes, like especially during right, the, right. Dar the dark days of the Cold War uh, under Reagan, maybe they'd go out and play some sort of Eastern Baltic kind of thing. And then, right, right. And, and so I wonder, what they, would they do some sort of Middle East tinge thing today in honor of the, uh, or African thing for Libya? Maybe they, maybe they do the Mo market off he's gone. <laughs> <laughs> he's gone. You know, my, my, uh, the summer camp that I went to in upstate New York, uh, uh, you know, a lot of older heads went to a lot of shows, and we used to make a lot of tie-dye shirts. Uh, the counselor staff would make a lot of tie-dye. It was the the name of the camp was called Scatico, and uh, the you, there was a uh, you know Grateful Dead logo on it, and it said Scatico your face. <laughs> it was awesome. I know there's so many great shirts out there. I mean, just uh, you know, a million variations on them. Uh, I always thought it'd be fun to do somebody started an online repository of photos of everybody's shirts that they have sitting in drawers and all that stuff, just so they would all be in one place um, so it, we could see them again. A lot of those shirts were very, I mean, they were really well, tastefully done. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, got, I've, got, I've bought so many great ones during the, uh, the uh, early and mid and late 80s, um, you know, in Ventura, you know, and all these places inspired so many great shirts. and. Uh, I still have a lot of them. I can't fit into any of them, but now my kids wear them. <laughs> That's right. Are your my kids... daughter wears, wears my shirt now. So. Do they do they dig on the dead, too? Um, yeah, somewhat. Uh, my son, who is uh, twenty, just turned 21, he went to see Further the other night at, at the Greek Theater in L.A. Liked it. 
pretty much. Uh, my daughter has not seen further yet, but uh, yeah, I mean, they, they grew up hearing the dead a ton in the car and all that kind of stuff, and I would say both of them went through their uh, rebel against mom and dad stage where they didn't want to hear any Grateful Dead. Right. <laughs> they burned out, but they but as they both, my daughter's uh, about to turn 18, like I said, my son's 21, they both sort of come back to the dead, though, and I, I think they, they appreciate it and realize how many great songs there are and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I'm, I have to gear. I have to gear up for that too. Although I, they all have very, they both have very broad tastes, though, in the hip hop and you know all that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, I'm just making sure my daughter listens to Dizzy Gillespie from 1973 uh, <laughs> with Mike Longo and James Moody and Mickey Roker. And the more we listen to that stuff, I know she'll be fine. I, I, yeah, I was going to ask she'll you. Still rebel too. I know. I know. I'm, I I got a little ways. I I I uh, I have to ask you. Um, the 83 was always an interesting period for me, uh, researching it because they played at, you know, UVM, uh, Morgantown, uh, Orono, I think it's pronounced, Maine. Yeah. yeah. And, and they were still playing these college barns, and a lot of the guys that I, that I contact online who are roughly your age, and they went through this, you know, first shows were like 79, you know, I know yours was 70, but guys that were there, they said those joints were really great to see the band, and I was wondering, I, I understand that there was a financial shift in music industry in the mid-80s to right. make as much money as possible. But I, was it also something like th- like th- whatever the Grateful Dead stood for in the eyes of the uh, the administrations of schools all of a sudden became a threatening thing? Is that why it stopped? Because it... it, it, it uh, no, I, I, I think we, we, we talked about this a little bit last time. I think it was mostly because um, they, the Dead got too popular. They were, you know, just got to be too... You know, they couldn't play a 5,000-seat gymnasium anymore. Um, they had to play bigger arenas just because they became more popular. And, you know, obviously, as you become more popular, your your own price goes up for, for what you uh, get for a night and all, all that kind of stuff. And uh, it's amazing, you know, and I've done a lot of research on the, the 60s and early 70s, and, and they were still so low-paid. Like, 1969, they would typically get, like, uh, 3000 bucks a night. Wow. Know, <laughs> yeah. Which is not very much. Yeah. Um, and uh, but ticket prices were only like you know three fifty or something. I guess the, I guess the more appropriate question, Blair, is I never I, I didn't get to follow up on this, but tell me some of the you said in the early eighties it was great because they started playing really cool venues. So I, I was hoping you could talk about a couple of those venues in particular that stood out uh, because you see them in pictures or you read about them, but right. you know you, it's not like being there watching the dead. Well, certainly, I mean. The, the ones out here that, that stand out the most were the Greek Theater in Berkeley, which uh. is this magnificent 9,000-seat, uh, uh, I guess you'd essentially call it a concrete bowl, but it's stepped in, the, in a kind of the classic Greek theater, like ancient Greek theater uh, way. Um, uh, and it sits up, up uh, on a hill right above the Berkeley campus. From the top of the bowl, you can see across the bay, you can see the Golden Gate, you can see the East Bay and the Bay and all this kind of stuff. Um, incredible acoustics, uh, just because it's sort of enclosed. You, you're sort of um, the, the bowl is, is fairly high, so I mean, not high like the, the Hollywood Bowl, which seats like twenty thousand or twenty-five thousand, so it's more than double the size of it. But it's, it, what was cool is it, it was quite round in the sense that um, the stage was made. Maybe it goes to like uh, two hundred and forty degrees. Uh, stage in the middle, so you would sort of look across it and you'd see everybody, and you, there was really a sense of being part of this giant crowd, this cool crowd, uh, because everybody could see each other and everybody was kind of interacting in, in that way, more than when it's just kind of a big thing where
right. forever, you know, so right. at a festival or something like that. So it has an intimacy, and the sound is contained, and the sound is really good. And the first few years, in particular, um, there really weren't any problems outside. They even did a thing the first couple of years where there's a right outside the Greek there was a, there's a big uh, dormit- uh, dormitory, is that what they're called? Yeah, dorm. Yeah. Uh, called um, Bolt. Uh, not Bolt. Bolt is awesome. I can't remember what it's called. But anyway, um, they have a, a soccer field there, and they would put speakers on the soccer p- field for sort of the overflow <laughs> crowd. So then, you know, that contained the crowd that sort of the overflow crowd that came and showed up and didn't have tickets and that kind of thing. So were that you, was really great. Were you but there? And the later on, it just got to be too much of a magnet, you know. I mean, the Greek shows became such a big deal that everybody would want to come out, and they came out whether they had tickets or not, and there were then thousands of people outside, and it got to be have a really kind of bad impact on the, the uni- on the university neighborhood, which is right there. I mean, it's right in the middle of the university, so, yeah. The, uh, um, it seemed actually like the Dead's popularity really started to actually peak before Garcia's coma. It it culminated culminated in 87 with the MTV commercialization, but it seemed to me that by 85, things had gone astray a little bit. Not astray, but just they they had changed. No, you're you're absolutely right. They were were definitely well on their way to uh, major popularity. I mean, they were already quite popular, but, you know, they, they were certainly able to sell out nights in Madison Square Garden or the Spectrum or all those big places back east. Uh, out here, we were, we were fortunate enough that they played a lot of shows in slightly smaller places. I mean, um, another great place was Frost Amphitheater. Oh, yeah. Even more beautiful than the Greek because it was stepped and grass and surrounded by trees. And uh, Again, this, that was sort of a more natural bowl. Um, and you're, it was kind of right in the middle of the campus. And it, it all, you parked in eucalyptus groves and it was very, very like you know, it was just a great setting. But so that was nine thousand seats, also. So they were playing kind of multiple days at these kind of places, um, and that was working okay out here. But back east, they were already having to play, uh, you know, basketball arenas essentially all the time. And uh, the stadium thing didn't really kick in until after Garcia came back from the coma. And you know, eighty-seven. I guess the first big tour. Well, actually, in eighty-six, they played a couple of stadiums. Remember with uh, Dylan. Uh, you know, before Jerry's... Milk. Yeah, the, the Akron, like the the Akron the Bowl, yeah. Bowl in Akron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple, a couple other ones. Rich Stadium. Uh, yeah, yeah. So they were already sort of heading in that direction already, and then kind of the demand when Jerry came back just increased it that much more, so they had to do more of it, and that's when they started playing uh, giant places. Do, can you... I, I meant to do this at the beginning when I brought up the... Uh, the Qaddafi, uh, he's gone, space-themed uh, thing. But I, I wanted to ask you, uh, I was talking to a buddy of mine, and, and it seemed to me when Brent uh, joined the band, uh, they were doing drums, but then they'd go directly into a uh, uh, formatted song, like a Not Fade Away. How did space, again, I assume it, uh, knowing the dead and uh, knowing how organically everything kind of grew, uh, I'm sure Space did the same thing, but but how did it how did it develop? How did you see it develop over time? Um, well, it's pretty much just like what you said. It seemed like uh, in 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 the late '70s there would be, sort of be a drum solo uh, that usually would then sort of go into some other tune fairly quickly. I think what happened is uh, you know when when they came back in '79 with Brent and uh, came back at Spartan Stadium in April 79. Yeah. That was sort of the introduction of the Beast, you know, which is the right. great percussion set right. up behind 
behind Mickey and Billy with a ring of drums and all that kind of stuff. And I think what happened is they basically just kind of, uh, that grew larger and larger during 79 and 80. Um, and uh, so, you know, the, the drum solo spot became more interesting, I think, definitely, than, than like in the 70s, late 70s, earlier in the late 70s. Um, and, um, you know, just I, I think it just became a natural evolution for them once Mickey and Billy would go into their little more meditative stuff at the end of the drum solo, playing tar and talking drum or that kind of stuff. It made more sense for a couple of the guitar players, like Jerry and Bobby, to come out and start kind of, you know, messing around with what those kind of softer rhythms, which is kind of a spacier, uh, lighter space. Uh, and I think I think it just then they just sort of started getting into weirder and weirder stuff, and the drummers needed a break, so they would actually leave the stage, right, right. <laughs> which, which they didn't used to do uh, sometimes. Um, so, uh, so then that sort of took the rhythm out of it, so it gave Jerry and Bobby in particular a, a place where they could sort of explore more freeform, non-rhythmic stuff, and that became the uh, scary spaces we knew and loved. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially that... Uh that that one tour where you uh, saw a few shows and then got to Santa Fe, uh, that that '83 year uh, was so interesting. It was like uh, Jerry was in a somewhat of a fog, but when he came out of it, he was like happy. He's always a happy guy, but you can just see from the, some of the video, also like listening to him, his chops were so strong, and uh, and those spaces were were eerie. I mean, they took on a you know there'd be Middle Eastern uh, a feel to it, especially if Mickey was playing like a lot of polyrhythm stuff. Uh, and, and Billy, you know, uh, I, we, I was curious uh, if Mickey Mickey rejoining the band. Um, I mean, if, if the Dead had stayed with one drummer, do you think they would have evolved into as much of a rock band as they as they did? Well, I don't know. It's hard hard, hard to speculate. Um, uh, yeah, I, I have no idea. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's hard to say. I mean, I guess they would have sounded more like they sounded when they left in '74, right? Uh, but right. they used the the reentry of Mickey into the band in '76 uh, as an excuse to relearn a bunch of their tunes and rearrange them in different ways, and also introduced a bunch of songs that had not been in the repertoire that really could utilize the two drummer approach. Things like um, you know, like Samson and Delilah is a perfect example of a tune that came in when Mickey came back. Exactly. Um, and, and was great for two drummers. And St. Stephen was never really a one-drummer song, and uh, I think it made sense for that to come back. And uh, I don't know, I just say, you know, the, uh, Let It Grow was a great two-drummer song, even though it was a great one-drummer song, too. But there was just a lot, a lot, of, a lot of things that, that benefited from having two, two drummers there. And I definitely think the, the Rhythm Devil segment, or drums, or whatever you want to call it, after Mickey come, came back is... is uh, becomes much more interesting than it was when it was just Billy kind of pounding away on his little kit. <laughs> no, I, I, um, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, uh, fascinating because, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I think it was great they did it. Uh, yeah. I, I, I just, um, you know, you listen to some of that stuff with, with Billy from 73 and you know, they, you know, they were getting off on all the stuff that you were seeing in 73 and they were hearing all that stuff and they were doing all that swing stuff and, uh, and then bringing that that extra percussive instrument in there actually, you know, was just a huge enhancer. It was like he was like the, he had the largest amount of percussion that any percussionist has ever had. <laughs> well, you know, you use the term swing, and that that's an interesting notion because I, I think it's absolutely true that the Grateful Dead without Mickey was more swinging in the sort of traditional jazz sense. They were looser and a little more fluid right. than they 
we're with Mickey. I mean, it, it becomes a different animal when, when Mickey comes back. Well, you look at Mickey too, it's like more powerful, but a little less swinging. You no, know, it's it, but also it's it's more like it's more rhythmic. It's more African because yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> like if you look at uh, that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, if you if you look at that that show from Germany on DVD from '81, I don't know if you've seen that yeah. or not. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and and uh, Mickey in '81 was like he was ripped. I mean, he was just cut. He was like totally focused. And you know, Billy was starting to sag a little bit, but you know, Mickey kept that band tip top shape. You know, and I'm not sure. You know, I'm. It's interesting to me. Like I I'm curious as if you know if if somebody needed a kick in the ass during the night. Would somebody kind of yell at him, get under their skin? I mean, all those guys have been hanging nah, up. Nah, nah, They never did that ever, as far as I know. <laughs> no, nah, they. No. What was? I they, mean, what they, was they, the? What, they wouldn't even. You know, I have this theory. You know that the that the Grateful Dead like never, almost never played uh, a version of Uncle John's band where they didn't screw up the lyrics somewhere. And it's because they never like would go back and say, "Hey, you know, we really should." It's really down by the river, by the riverside this time, and then by the rising tide this time. You know, they never went back and kind of reevaluated stuff or changed things or yelled yelled at each other. No, I mean, like I, what I'm talking about made is them probably tighter and uh, better in certain ways. But you know, it was, it was like uh, they were living for the performances and. And once they were done, they were done. You no, know, I meant I meant actually during the show on stage. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, 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 don't, I can't imagine that happening. Right. I can't imagine somebody going to Kreutzer and saying, "Come on, Billy, pick it up." Or well, no, like I mean, I guess <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is they they Kreutzman, Garcia, Weir, Lash, they had all and Mickey too. They had all grown up together. So they like Bobby says it in, in that in the, one of the conversations with Gans. I mean. The Grateful Dead support all his weaknesses, and they also know all yeah. his, his faults. And so I'm thinking that, like, if they knew that somebody was just kind of dragging, not in a bad mood, or just dragging a little bit, but they they were excited, they just give him a they give him a ribbing on stage. I just want to know about their communication on the stage because a lot of it yeah. was a lot of it was musically. You know, they'd go through some interlude like Terrapin estimated, but more than not, like during those. Sometimes you'll listen to a cassette and he, they'll play a song and then it's like, Jerry's like, oh, okay, I'm going to have a cigarette. I guess he's having a cigarette because it takes like 10 minutes to start the next song. And I'm like, are they talking to each other? Like, what are they doing? Yeah, they're usually standing around on stage in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jerry, Jerry's facing his aunt smoking a cigarette. You know. <laughs> Somebody might be t- tuning up, you know, taking their sweet time. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't think they really. Once they were on stage, they really talked to each other much or encouraged each other that much. I mean, whatever, if, if there were musical cues, they, I'm sure they could could have done that. And um, you know, occasionally you'll see if you see a video of something, you might you might actually see somebody give a little hand signal to speed something up. You know, they didn't like, want. They didn't want to talk to each other on the stage. No, no. I mean, they talked to each other musically, so I, I think they said what they needed to say to each other that way. No, oh, that's beautiful. And, well, and, uh, you know, if if uh, everybody had off nights, <laughs> they weren't limited to one guy, <laughs> and, uh, and that's still the case. And they and then if they had an off night, they definitely knew it. I mean, Bobby in that interview, yeah. he he talked about going, he talked about going out to dinner with the Midnight's, yeah, and uh, and and they had a lot of wine, and they were they were drunk, whatever. They were having fun, but like these these fans came up and uh, the fans had come up pr- after the show at, at the Keystone it had been a, apparently a relatively weak show and they were like that was awesome Bobby great job Every, you know and like they all knew they sucked and and, uh, and 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 then the flip so it was sort of like how do you deal with sort of that um, unobjective sort of you know fervor and, and then and then the flip, the flip of the coin is you know I think Gan said it he's like you know or Bobby said it he said 
as far as I'm concerned, the fans are entitled to feel any way they want to feel about the music. Right. You know, we might not feel great about it, but you know what? They're the ones that support us and they idolize us. And I, th- I thought that was refreshing philosophy, actually. Well, you know, I think I think Jerry said that that I always thought was pretty eye opening is that you know, you know, people are always really excited to hear all these different songs, and you know, they like it when they go out on a limb and, and try these different things. And he said, from his perspective, a lot of the most fun shows are the ones where, you know, it might be predictable to the audience, but it's really smooth from the musician standpoint. So maybe it's doing something they've done, you know, estimated eyes or something, something that they do constantly, but it's performed really well. So from his perspective. It's not just all about taking chances, but it's also about how, what, you, what can you actually achieve in playing the songs you're playing. So, so he liked some of the kind of safer, so-called safer shows uh, for that reason, just because they were more satisfying as, as him accomplishing what he sets out to accomplish as a player. Well, tell me a little bit about your experience. Uh, you know, you, you said your first sit-down interview with, with Jerry was in 85, but, I mean, you were a full-on yeah. participant in the April and June 80. Yeah, you're right, you're right. I, I you, fl- you really flubbed that. You flubbed that, Blair. You flubbed that. But no, th- those yeah, that, that was amazing. That was uh, yeah, two different days we went up there. Can you talk about that? Well, um, you know, Rock Scully set it up, and he was always semi unreliable. But, but <laughs> these actually happened. Yeah. Um, and uh, they were done up at Hepburn Heights, where Jerry and I guess Rock was living there too. Yeah. Um, and you know, I guess in in the grand historical scheme of things, you know, Jerry was already using and all that kind of stuff, but he was totally lucid, bright, funny, engaging, the, the whole the whole deal, so I, I, I never would have suspected anything, and, you know, maybe he was fine on, on those days, but uh, yeah, he was great, he was just a fantastic interview. Uh, you know, you could bring up any subject and he'd have an opinion about it, or know some strange thing, or read a book about the odd <laughs> facet of it, you know, and it, we get into, like, the Spear of Destiny, you know, Albert Spears thing, that Hitler was into sacred objects. Right. You know, yeah, some really of this odd, stuff is odd, over my head. but tangents in, in those two days. So it was great. Did you, uh, yeah, I remember you reading, uh, you writing in, in uh, Garcia, An American Life, uh, uh, Merle, Merle Saunders, I think, was quoted as saying he knew Jerry was kind of off the wagon uh, when he, he totally missed the show. And then, uh, that was 79, but then you wrote that by 81, he had done a remarkable job of, if he was using, really covering it up, because he was as, he was spot on. And and uh, his playing was also crispy, too. Um, evidenced by this song, I, I, I love doing these, uh, you know, name that tune, name that year, uh, with Blair Jackson. And, 81? <laughs> right, <laughs> you got 81. But I, I want you to listen to this... Um, uh, and uh, and comment on it. I've never heard uh, this kind of um, this playing from Garcia ever. And uh, so I just well, let's listen to it, and we'll come back and talk about it. Okay. Thank you. 
Yeah, so they they spliced in a soundboard. Uh, Pretty hot. You know, the, the, it was that last part where he just after the he kind of does yeah. he does the refrain, and then he blows it into like some like wah wah thing. Yeah, yeah. What the, what what show is that? That's three nine eighty one MSG. Oh, okay. They, yeah, they they uh they they used to be scared of Madison Square Garden and places like that. Well, you know, they were somewhat imposing. They were also sort of a symbol of, of, of a certain something, which was a, a level of success I'm not sure they thought they had. You know, it was the place where the Rolling Stones would play, and the Grateful Dead, I think, did not think they were on the level of the Rolling Stones for, for, for a long time. And also, um, you know, there was a certain... Uh, you know, we talked about them playing college gyms and stuff like that, and I think they liked the intimacy of that and the, the intimacy of playing theaters and the intimacy of small arenas. Um, but, you know, Madison Square Garden is kind of the pinnacle, in a way. <laughs> it's New York, and it's the biggest thing in New York, so, other than Giant Stadium, but <laughs> right. before that. Uh, you know, it's, it represented a certain thing, so I can see why that would be somewhat intimidating. But I, I think they warmed to it pretty quickly. They almost never played a bad show there, <laughs> and they played there a lot. So. And you... they always played well with the Spectrum, too, in Philly. Yeah, because Philly crowds are out of their minds. Yeah, that, that's I've never actually seen a show in Philadelphia, and I, I, but I've certainly heard that. I mean, their 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 sports fans are out of control, and I assume they're pa- they, you know what it is. They just the same people, it's actually. the city of brotherly love. There's so much <laughs> love that it just pours all over the band. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so but they better play well. You, you uh, was it was it tr- uh, true? I read, I believe, again, American Life, um, that uh, this is classic though. Like when Brent first came into the band, there was really no announcement. The crowd was not sure who was going to take over. Some thought it might be Merle Saunders. Um, Wait, when, when are you talking about? This is Spartan Stadium, four twenty-two seventy-nine. Oh, uh, I, never, I never heard any rumors about Merle. You mean uh, you mean before Brent joined? Yeah, well, they, I, I thought it was in the book. I mean, I, it basically said that, like, no, the, I, I didn't, I didn't say that. The, the, fan, the fans, the fans were unsure. How, how did he get introduced? I mean, was it like, folks, we have a new keyboard player? Or, I mean, was it just? Yeah, they were. They were I, don't, I don't think they even. I, I wasn't actually at that show. I, I didn't go because it was in a stadium. Believe it or not, <laughs> I'm not going to go to that giant show. Um, Anyway, oh, it was too big. It was yeah, too big for you. I don't. I don't think they introduced him from the stage. Um, I think by then everybody kind of, you know, did its talk and did its might have known. Although you know, Brent told me when I interviewed him, oh, people people still yell out for Keith. <laughs> you know? so, so maybe some people for a while didn't know who was who. But uh, no, I never heard that about uh, Merle. That that I don't think that that would have been a good fit at all because they really wanted somebody who could sing, and Merle was not a good singer. So I I, I don't know where that rumor came from. Right. No, I guess I, 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 I heard that at the time. And, I didn't write that in my book. Okay, we'll take that. We'll, we'll, we'll scratch that. Touch, touch of Grey, Throwing Stones, West L.A. Fade Away. We're already in heavy rotation by 1983. And how come the band did not get into the studio and cut an album during during this time if they were in financial straits? Uh, they weren't in financial straits in that time that, that, that I'm aware of. Um, but uh, they're... The answer is that they tried to go into the studio in 84. They went into Fantasy Studios in Berkeley and tried to lay down versions of Throwing Stones and a couple of couple of the other tunes, and they were not good. And Jerry was a mess, yeah. <laughs> quite frankly. And that that's really the main reason. Like, we're, one of the controversial things about that, those sessions is that Weir brought a burnt drum machine in for the first time to sort of show the beat he wanted on Throwing Stones or something, and the drummers were very offended. <laughs> you know, drum machines were 
good drum machines were sort of new at that point. And uh, they right. did not like that idea. So they abandoned those sessions after a week or two or something. And then yeah, so, so those... In 85, then, they went back, you know, they went to, into the Marin Civic, you might remember, and um, did these sessions that were that they videotaped and recorded um, for what became the video so far. But they were also thinking of it in terms of maybe as a way to get basic tracks for the album. But then that's, you know... They, they did that a couple of different times in 85 and 86. Jerry had the meltdown, so then they didn't really get back to approaching the album until 87. But, uh, but yeah, during that, that period from uh, 81 to 84, I don't know, I, I think I think there just wasn't enough momentum for them to get into the studio. They had put out Reckoning and Go to Heaven Reckoning and Dead Set in pretty quick succession in, in uh, 80 and 81. Right. And felt like, you know, they were sort of covered for a couple of years. And they didn't have that many new songs, really. I mean, like you mentioned, those ones that they did have, uh, but they didn't have uh, that many. And when, when Jerry came back uh, in in 86, is that's when we get, you know, like Black Muddy River and Push Comes to Shove, for better or worse. Um, right, well, no, the, the thing I wanted you to talk about, that one of my favorite parts, I read it a lot, uh, one of my favorite parts of the book, uh, was was that your your uh, re, you relayed the information that that uh, the the Deadheads actually wanted they they forcibly asked the Dead to stop playing day job. <laughs> well, that's actually something Robert Hunter said. Hunter said so. So, can you explain what Hunter said? Because I think that's a great story. Oh, I, I think he's he's being uh, hyperbolic, but but he is well aware that many Deadheads did not like that song at all. <laughs> didn't didn't want to hear it anymore. <laughs> and I think he I think that the little offhanded remark he made in his lyric book at the at the bottom of the page was something like, you know, uh, which the, the, the dead stopped playing due to popular demand or something like that. It, it, he's not being literal, but I think Jerry was, was aware that, that people didn't like it, and maybe the band as a whole was, and they were nice enough to stop. I thought the way you wrote, I thought the way you wrote it, though, was so great. I mean, you talked about it kind of, it, it snapped them out of their, their dream state. Uh, yeah, I don't know. You know it's, a, it's not a terrible song, but, but uh, I did see it a bunch of times, and I never wanted to hear it ever. You know, it, I mean, it was, it, first of all, stylistically, it was very similar to Deal and a couple of other songs that Jerry already did. And it was just something about the whole message of the song, Keep Your Day Job Until Your Night Job Pays. It, it sort of seemed like a slap in the face to the fans or something to me. I don't know. It just I, I never took it the right way. It had some really clever lines in it, though. I mean, some good couplets and stuff like that. Um, you know, whether you like that job or not, better keep it on ice while you're lining up your long shot. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have minded it at the end of of the first set, but like uh, to end the show, they did a lot of encores. That would have yeah, been a lot of encores, a lot of buzz like, kills. Oh, really? This is what you were sending us away? <laughs> <laughs> Just leave us and go back to your job. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. It was it was it was not their finest moment. It, you know, that that happened to a bunch of songs. You know, Phil was famous for sort of introducing songs, and they'd be played a few times and thankfully disappear, things like Waves to the Wind and some of these awful atrocities he, he brought up in the, uh, in the uh, 90s. You know, and, and, and Brent tunes, I mean, I love Brent's playing. I, I, his tunes, um, uh, sometimes if, they, if, if uh, it was like sort of, he took the initiative, like pre-drums to do like uh, uh, yeah. don't, don't Need Love or something, and like Jerry would leave the stage, but like Bobby... Another song I never wanted to hear. I don't need love and I don't need you. That was so out of place at a Grateful Dead show. I just did not want to hear that. it. Was, it was kind of... Uh, that's so interesting. You're right. I never... You know, for some reason, Blair, I like hearing, uh, like, when Bobby and... Because they knew Brent was struggling personally. 
Yeah. I mean, that was his, that's his life. I mean, that, that no, was... They, they, let the, they, yeah, they certainly gave him the space to do that. And that was fine. I mean, I just didn't want to hear it. <laughs> I right. mean, I liked a lot of Brent's tunes. I, I even sort of liked uh, the, the often reviled um, uh, We Can Run, you know. It was catchy. <laughs> pretty, pretty good lyrics, ecologically uh, sound and all that kind of stuff. I liked uh, Tons of Steel. I think his best song was uh, Built to Last. I mean, I'm, I mean uh, uh, Just, just a, a Little Light. light. You know, which I think is really good. Just a Little Light is a phenomenal... Further, further does that, and they do a really good job of it. I heard Warren Haynes do that song with Phil and Friends. Yeah, Warren, Warren rips Warren that song up. Yeah. It's beautiful. You yeah, know... I, I like uh, Warren, so. Yeah, he's, a, he's, I lo- he's a beautiful player. I, lo- I And he kind of looks like... Sometimes he resembles Garcia from 84. Mm-hmm. Definitely. In one, of, in one of those interviews um, with Gans, uh, I thought it was interesting. Garcia was talking about how he was learning to sing again. And that he that a lot of times on tours, uh, it took him a while to get his voice. And I was just, if, I wonder if there was a period of time where you saw like maybe a four night run, uh, you know, in any of your recollection where, you know, at the beginning Jerry just didn't, you know, you could tell it was just it, it was they were rusty. But then by the especially with his voice, he really you could hear a confidence level three or four days later that was not evident in that first night. It's kind of got a sea legs. I, I would. <laughs> Not to disagree with you, because I'm sure that happened sometimes. Right. I, 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 more common in my own experience was the opposite, which is him losing his voice. Oh, right on. Maybe get the cold or something, and over the course of two or three or four nights, it sort of goes away and gets harder to listen to and all that kind of stuff. But I, I think uh, what, what you were referring to was a period in the late 80s after he came back and when he was uh, much cleaner and all that kind of stuff. He just had more... He was more self-possessed. He had more body presence. He, I think his vocals got better just because he was more confident and more together and self-aware. <laughs> uh, and that made him project more. And that, wow. that's why you get some of those amazing versions of Morning Dew in the late 80s. And, you know, just him making attempts at notes he wouldn't have even tried a, a couple of years earlier when he was in kind of a darker place and not really putting out that much vocally uh, night to night. I mean, that, I remember... Uh, when uh, you know when, when we got to the the eighty three eighty four period when Jerry was really not looking good at all I mean he was really just kind of you know barely moving and all that kind of stuff yeah I remember uh, I think a new version of the Dead movie came out and uh, you know I'd sort of forgotten how much he used to move you know even as as, as late as like seventy five sure. seventy seven and all that kind of stuff um, but uh, yeah he changed so much physically through through the years and one one forgets that. You know, when he was younger, he used to really project his voice all the time, pretty much, and that was really how he established himself as a singer. And he used to move and you know shake his leg and whatever, you know. Right. And he just he just stopped all that as as he got in worse and worse physical shape in the, in the early eighties. Still played really well in the early eighties, but uh, it was it's not a pretty sight some days. The um, yeah, no, and and it's 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 it was it's a really it's it's very relevant because I was Bobby was Bobby in the book was talking about. Uh, Jerry used to, especially the Pigpen years. Jerry moved around a lot, even yeah. though he he wasn't the head showman, but he, he was very very he was he, he used to, yeah. His body his body control was there, and then and then he essentially just kind of, you know, he shrunk away. He actually took on sort of a a, a Hobbit kind of look to him um, at times. Um, so Blair, if you if you if Jerry was still alive today, what? What would the band, what would you, how could you see the band functioning these days? 
Don't you don't have to come off on the fly, man. You know we can we can do it's all good. It's just one of those no, things. No, no, like, I, I, you know, I, I do have some opinions. I think, you know, here's here's the good thing and the bad thing. The good thing is we would have Jerry still, which would be the greatest thing of all, right? Mm-hmm. The bad the bad thing, and it's not really a bad thing, but what what we've what we've gotten in the last fifteen years that we would not have gotten probably if Jerry were still around is all this really interesting investigation of the deep side of the Grateful Dead's repertoire that people like Phil and Bob have done and in their own bands and in Further and all this kind of stuff where they turn Mountains of the Moon inside out and suddenly it's a 15-minute thing with these incredible space segments in the middle and they've rewritten the 11 to have a slightly different vibe to it and they're doing what's become of the baby. I mean, just all these things. I know Jerry would not have done any of these things. And, uh, you know, would I rather have Jerry around? Yes, absolutely. But since we don't, uh, it's been great to see uh, them, the surviving guys, willing and able to take all these songs that Jerry had essentially abandoned and would not play for whatever reasons and, and do something interesting with them. I mean, I remember there's a, there's a very specific thing where, where, where I asked Jerry if he, you know, uh, if he, ever play Golden Road again? And he said, no, absolutely no. No, it's a stupid song. <laughs> and uh, I love hearing the Golden Road when Further plays it now, and it makes everybody happy. Um, right. You know, I think I think the crowd thing would have continued to get out of control. It was it was bad in 95. You know, I mean, look at 95, the famous tour from hell, yeah. where there was all the, the break-ins up in Vermont and the Deer Creek episode with the gate crashers and the assassination threat to Jerry. I mean, you know, I, I don't know what would have would have calmed all that down. I, I, you know, it just seems like it would have gotten worse and worse and worse. I mean, even Fish, uh, you know, who were sort of the natural uh, successors to the Dead in the sense of, of accumulating both their own audience and a lot of the Deadheads once once Jerry died, um, they they had problems in their scene and they kind of shut it down for a few years and they come back and it's still really big. And uh, <clears throat> the good thing about Further is. Is the and the and filled bands and all that kind of stuff is they are smaller they're they're manageable so they don't have in general the same kind of crowd issues that they had towards the end of the dead and um, I don't know I, I just don't know what what would have been, how they would have escaped the, the problems of the crowd yeah the, 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 it's the uh... musically I have no idea where they would have gone I mean again I, I don't think Jerry was really in, that into revisiting the old repertoire that much. Or, <laughs> taking many chances, it seems like. I mean, I love all his late period songs, Lazy River Road and Days Between and So Many Roads and all those kind of, I think they're all great songs, but it doesn't seem like he was heading in any kind of interesting or particularly novel direction when, when he died. So I don't know if we would have gotten sort of more of kind of regular songs or whether he would have switched gears at some point and said, oh, okay, you know, now let's try some, let's write a ballet or, you know, it would have depended on whether he managed to keep his life together and his right. habits uh, out of the forefront uh, of how inspired he was going to be. Um, to have another couple of years or a few years of the way they played in 94 and 95 would have been incredibly depressing. Right. Because 94 and 95 were incredibly depressing. No one wants to see those teleprompters. Well, actually, Phil's band still uses them. You know, here's the thing, Blair, final final question. Thanks again for, for, uh, I know you got to go, so thanks again for taking taking the time to do this. But hard guy to get a hold of. Please talk about Bill Walton and his relationship with the dead. Because that guy, 
is the amount of references that he makes to it vis-a-vis yeah. sports is classic. Um, he represented sort of the the old school, uh, you know, crossover psychedelic rock uh, right. with the sports athlete gave the dead some credibility in that. I mean, the dead got had Hell's Angels. They had all these guys, but Bill Walton. There's a picture from the Greek in '83. And he just looks completely out of his mind. <laughs> you, know, you, yeah. you know, so talk about him and your, your experiences with him. Um, um, well, you, you'd see him there and you would pray that he wasn't going to be sitting in front of you. <laughs> no. I'm not kidding. No, I know you're not. <laughs> oh, no, it's Walt. He's coming this way. Oh, no! <laughs> uh, but, you know, he was usually wandering around a lot and would be backstage a lot. Um, yeah, you know, just a great guy. You know, totally got the dead was on the inside of the inside, obviously, and, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's in, he was in an unusual position because, obviously, he was a top athlete, um, and you can't have a top athlete going around talking about drugs and, you know, all oh, ghosts in Egypt and this and that, and uh, so he, he sort of basically never talked about that aspect of his Grateful Dead fandom. Which is fine. I mean, he's he's still a, you know isn't he still an announcer on basketball? Games? Yeah, well, I mean, his health is his back is deteriorated, but but uh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, he, anyway, so yeah. you know, but he's, he it was I thought I always thought it was great having a guy that prominent and that out there in the mainstream, sort of uh, pitching for the Grateful Dead at all times, and uh, you know, I like all those all those people who celebrities who who weren't ashamed to say they were deadheads or who wore the badge proudly. There aren't that many of them, but but they're all cool, you know, whether it's Patrick Leahy, the senator from Vermont. Right, exactly. And Tipper Gore, or, you know, all the, all these people, uh, you know, it, it, it was fine, and, and, and we are everywhere, you know. <laughs> we will survive. Blair Jackson, thank survive. you, my we friend. We have survived. Yeah, we have. And, uh, and uh, keep on trucking, buddy, and keep doing great work. We'll, uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks a lot, Jake. All right, Blair. Take care. Bye-bye.